Frank, did you just put that peanut up your nose? Cashew, yes. Why? Because I bought it. Who wants to start? I guess I'll go first. I am Crit from the UK. I am George from Austria. And before we discuss the filmography of Noah Baumbach, we have to address the elephant in the room. It's again only the two of us today, and the reason for that is that we haven't actually heard from Bia on any platform. The most recent episode was unannounced to you guys pre-recorded, so it's been a while since either of us got a hold of her. We assume something in her personal life happened and just hope that she's alright. If she ever returns, we would be happy to instantly take her back, but for the meantime, starting from the next episode, we're gonna have guests fairly frequently to still give this podcast some other than just our perspectives. And with that PSA out of the way, as mentioned on the last episode, we are going to be exploring the works of Noah Baumbach this time around. He's both one of our favourite directors, so we're very glad to bring this discussion to you now. We're going to be talking about The Squid and the Whale, which is notable for being his breakout film in terms of mainstream attention. Also, Francis Ha, a collaborative effort with his partner Greta Gerwig. And finally, Marriage Story, his wildly successful 2019 Netflix film which boasts six Oscar nominations, including one win for Best Supporting Actress for Laura Dern. Starting with The Squid and the Whale. Thoughts? This was my fourth Noah Baumbach I have seen now. I've seen it for the first time for this episode, so this is pretty new and fresh on my mind, and it might be my least favorite of this. Still a very good movie overall, on all the technical aspects I really don't have that much to complain about, I just didn't quite vibe with it. I couldn't even put my finger on it specifically as to why, but it's really one of those where I appreciate the movie more than I really like it. I mean, yeah, I get that. So just just for reference, are the four you've seen, the three we're discussing today, so Francis Harsquid and the Whale, Marriage Story, and White Noise? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, so I've seen most Bombac films, so I'm, I am missing a few. But of all the ones that I've seen, this one is tied first. I I really, really like it a lot. Um, I plan on doing a video on it, which might be out by the time this episode comes out. It might not be. But I really like it. Obviously, the seeds of what was later to come are very much present here. You know, all the themes of divorce and stuff like that. But... Unlike Marriage Story, this film focuses on divorce much more through, like, the children's eyes rather than the divorcees. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I'm not sure if Noah Bombach's parents are divorced, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yes, this story is absolutely his personal story. He is basically Walt. And you can actually feel and see that if you have that knowledge in mind and pay attention during marriage story where Charlie is basically the self-insert Noah Baumbach character, how Charlie shares a lot of the traits and characteristics of Walt here in Squid and the Whale. 
I mean, yeah. So uh, I think that's quite interesting that he's uh, he's made two films pretty much on the on the whole concept of divorce. One through the lens of the children, mm-hmm. you know, based on his own experience, you know, through his parents' divorce, and then one on the lens of the divorcee, also being pretty much autobiographical of his own experience of being divorced. I get, I get, like the comparison, and I know a lot of people do compare the two, but I feel like they're doing very different things, and they're, you know, they're they're very much trying towards different goals and absolutely different ideas too like very much like all the characters are basically different walt is very similar to charlie in that way and that does make sense now i have always speculated that but i was never actually sure but it does make sense and i feel like all the characters very much represent something different because noah bombach is a very autobiographical director mm-hmm as is his partner, Greta Gerwig, which we'll later find out. Um, and every single film that he's ever made feels like there's a piece of him in them. And I know that's true for most directors, but I feel like it's especially true for Noah Baumbach. And I've, I, to be honest, just to take a quick tangent, I think that's why White Noise was so especially weird for him, because it felt, well, one, it was an adaptation. And it just felt very much like not like a piece of him. More so just something that he made. I want to briefly touch on that, not to get too deep into it, since this is not a podcast on white noise. But I have heard interviews both by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach about white noise. They both grew up with white noise. It is equally for both of them one of their favorite books as children. So a lot of the way dialogue is written in White Noise was direct inspiration that formed the way Noah Baumbach writes his dialogues. The thing is just with the adaptation, he wanted to be very faithful, I guess, so it's less of him, but I still feel him in it, since it so heavily influenced him becoming the way he is. Yeah, I was just about to get to the fact that, like, even though, yeah, it, it doesn't feel too much like him, it is him still. Which is um, a very weird line to toe. Mm-hmm. Um, to to compare him to someone that he often gets compared to, and probably kind of rightfully so, Wes Anderson. Bottle Rocket isn't very Wes Anderson in the way that we expect Wes Anderson to be. Same for Rushmore, really. But it is them, and you can feel that. Yeah. And I think it's a similar situation there with White Noise. But I think the Squid and the Whale is kind of almost the quintessential Noah Baumbach experience. I think it's his style at its most pure. Not its most refined, but definitely at its most pure. I can see that, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that just comes from how early on it was in his career. It was his third movie as far as I know? I think so. In an interview, he also mentioned back then 
right when it released that this finally felt like the movie he aimed for. In the previous attempts, he felt like he didn't quite succeed at putting his stamp on. So even in his own feeling as well, he kind of said what you just said, that this was the most Noah Baumbach a movie has ever been. Well, yeah, that I was just about to say, like, because he's had movies before this, but this is definitely the first Baumbach, you know? And yeah, it just kind it kind of feels like weirdly his old boy. Um, you know, we was talking about Park Chan Wook at a different point, and we was just saying that like Old Boy is just such a raw form of Park Chan Wook. For sure. It's nowhere near his most refined work or as focused as his abilities would get, but it is very much just the raw energy of him. And I feel like the squid and the whale is very much that. Um, it's just kind of an explosion of the Noah Bombachisms. I think it's interesting that you already mentioned Wes Anderson. Have you seen the Wes Anderson credit in the end credits? No. He produced the movie. Oh, I did not know that, no. So apparently both of them were good friends before this. Well, yeah, he helped write um, Life Aquatic before this film. Yes, absolutely. And Life Aquatic was the first time they officially wrote together. But before that, they were already having this ritual of meeting up in a restaurant together, sitting in front of each other, each writing on their own project and just bouncing ideas off each other. So in a way, even before all of the official credits they have together on movies, they were already writing together in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're, wa when you're watching a Wes Anderson film, even one that Noah Baumbach hasn't helped write, you can feel certain lines where you're like, oh, that feels like a Noah Baumbach line. Um, and then sometimes when you're watching a Noah Baumbach film, you'll see a shot that feels like a Wes Anderson shot. They are very much kind of brothers in the director's chair. You know, they just kind of have a similar face. Um, but yeah, anyway, right, to be really on topic of The Squid and the Whale. I adore how this film shows parental and marital problems and how they fester in, like, minor ways. Because this is obviously through the lens of the children. Yeah. And the first thing we see in the film is um the tennis match at the beginning. And just the way that the father is talking to Frank. No, not Frank, Walt, sorry. Just the way he's talking to Walt and saying like, oh, aim for your, you know, your mom's backhand. She has a weak backhand and stuff like that. Um, and it's kind of like, it feels vicious, mm -hmm. but like playfully sinister, you know? Because it, it's, it's not fun. You know, they're not having a good family time. He's trying really hard to win. For why? You know, like, things like that, kids don't really notice. Mm. A kid won't notice, like, a father just going, oh, yeah, aim for your mother's backhand, it's really weak. Because they're just like, oh, yeah, that's how we'll win. But, it, you know, in, in reality, it's him thinking, like, this is how I can get a win over my wife. You know, this is, um, this is a real competition for them outside of tennis. 
and he knows that will get her angry, you know? At this point in the movie, I wasn't even aware that this was gonna be about divorce. But the first thing I wrote down was overcompetitiveness within the family during tennis match. Yeah, like it it's it he he really sets the seed of something being very wrong but like in a very minor way. He just sets up everything in the very beginning. The whole movie gets its whole foundations from the first 10 minutes. And you would think that's like an obvious thing to do when you're writing a film, but it's kind of not. You know, it's it's hard to execute well. And it's especially hard to execute as perfectly and as economically as Noah Bombach does. Mm -hmm. He does it so quickly and efficiently with his little dialogue, this, uh, as little scenes. Because um, we get that scene at the dinner table, mm -hmm. and Walt asks um, Bernardi's dad um, what he thinks of A Tale of Two Cities, because they're yeah. reading it at school. I was about uh, to mention. Yeah, and he, you know, he's just saying, oh, blah, 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 it's overrated, um, this is better, this is better. And he says the quote, why do they always choose the worst books from the best authors, and something like that. Mm -hmm. It's such a pretentious thing to say. Yeah. You know, and then, because um, I'm going to quickly get to that in a second, the mother, Joanne, Joan, right, Joan, she tells Walt, you know, he should read it himself and make his own mind up. And he just says, I don't want to waste my time. Mm -hmm. I think that there is the perfect summation. You know, it's the perfect encapsulation of the entire dynamic. Is that although the you know, Bernard is supposed to be the scholar. He has the most narrow-minded view on art possible. You know, he feels like his opinion is the opinion. And Walt also thinks his opinion is the opinion. Where, whereas his mom, who, you know, in Walt's eyes is kind of like the leech in the family. You know, she became an artist because, you know, her husband was an artist. She's the one that thinks about art as, a, as an opinionated form. You should read it yourself, come to your own opinion, because you might think that this is his best work, and that's just as equally valid as Bernard's opinion. I think it also really sets up the way Walt idolizes his father in a way that where he just takes that opinion as gospel. You know, he he says he doesn't want to waste his time. He doesn't care about art because he says he doesn't want to waste his time. He cares about being the best. He cares about his father's approval. It really shows once we get to the scene with him and the girl flirting surrounding that book. Yes. Where everything already comes back. We have the final setup basically with him plagiarizing his dad. You have a final proof of him absolutely adoring his dad because he will just blindly repeat it without double checking anything for his own you have the clear proof that whatever his dad says is gospel in his mind and additionally everything is mainly played for a joke at that point i didn't expect that this whole plagiarizing someone else thing would be another setup for things to come back later on but they do. 
I was kind of struck once the whole plagiarizing came back with the song later on, because I didn't see it coming that that would be a major story point. It's such a perfectly hidden gun on the wall. Yeah, it was. It was beautiful. Like they just that that dinner table um scene feels kind of like nothing. But it's actually doing pretty much like 50% of the heavy lifting of the entire film very secretly. And then yeah, when it comes to that scene where he's talking to um that girl whose name I I am struggling to remember. He he says to her that blah blah blah, yeah, this is his whatever. She later on actually reads it and then comes back to him to want to discuss it. Which is really funny because obviously eventually he believes that like she's below him. It's crazy that the ego that has already festered in him that his father has given him to think that he's better than this person that is actually doing what he pretends to do. It's insane. Mm-hmm. I think it also brings up the the whole fact of how children choose their parents in the events of like separations and stuff. But they, you know, it also represents that like, well, not represents, but it also presents that children also choose their parents before divorce. Yeah, it's definitely already a pretty divided family at that point. Yeah, Walt is very much still, mm-hmm. you know, into his father, and Frank is very much into his mother at that point. Divorce just kind of heightens those relationships and perspectives. Yeah. And what doesn't help is that parents often play their children against the other parent. Oh, for sure. You know, in the, in the events of divorce, and Bernard definitely does that. More than Joan, but Joan Joan has her own problems, but Bernard feels much more like a villain in this situation. On the playing the kids against each other, I thought the scene where they talk about the bone structure, Frank with his mother, mm-hmm. yeah. where he says that he always believed that he has his mother's bone structure, and she just refutes that with like, no, you look like your father to me. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was such a great first instance of the younger boy choosing a side, even though it might not be clear to himself yet what exactly it is he's doing. He's still already distancing himself from the father. You can still see where his brain is going. The gears are turning and we as an outsider realize that. Absolutely. Also, you know, with the parallels of the children and um, the parents, I did, I did state before, but it was kind of vague. But um, Bernard is kind of an idiot. <laughs> like he's presented as the scholar of the family and the artist of the family, the writer, but he is kind of idiotic. He, I mean, a as we know, he's very narrow-minded, but also like. Even in minor examples where he mixes up reptilians and amphibians, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, because he calls uh, the turtle an amphibian, which is basic knowledge that it's a reptile, and he still doesn't know that, and he has to be corrected by Frank, of all people. And I think, yeah, it's just like, again, it's a small moment that means more than maybe you first think. 
but yeah, I, I would like to also just say that um, I myself am a child of divorce, so I feel like that definitely helps with how I perceive this film. I don't know if you are or not. I am not. Um, and therein might already be the reason why this doesn't ring as closely to me. Yeah, I mean, obviously... Th- these parental figures are not at all like my actual yeah, parents. Obviously. You know, neither of my parents are scholars. But you do see people take sides. And you do see how ugly family get with each other when those sides are taken. And I've definitely seen parents use their children as vehicles of spite. Mm. As I have been attempted to be used in that way. I just think... Noah Bombach is so good at relatability. He's almost too good mm-hmm. at relatability. To the point where, like, sometimes the relatability of his films can be exclusive. And I feel like this is one of those cases where, like you said, if you are not a child of divorce or you haven't been through these situations, then you can definitely appreciate this film. And you may even love it, you know? You can love a film that you don't relate to. but. It definitely is there for someone that has been through that and for someone that has experienced those things. And I feel like they they will connect with it much more. Yeah. As, you know, I've never been divorced, but I love Marriage Story. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And I, and I think for someone that maybe has actually been divorced, that film could hit a particular note that just can't be hit otherwise. And I think that's one of Noah Baumbach's geniuses, is making a good film about a subject that you don't necessarily need to have experienced to enjoy, but also if you have, then it becomes much better tenfold. I have watched all of these movies with other people this time around. And the general takeaway was always that anyone who had any similar experience to the people portrayed on screen by Noah Baumbach, they felt it intensely. Like, you're absolutely right. He's such a nuanced, naturalistic writer, which is something I wanted to mention, actually. I wouldn't consider Noah Baumbach to be specifically one of my favorite directors but I would definitely consider him to be one of my favorite writers. His writing is so fantastic. It just rings true in every scene, basically, and and always hits me, you know? You know, back to the whole, you know, parents imprinting on their children. Bernard attempts to do that with Frank also, where, you know, he's trying to push <laughs> yeah. him. You're not a Philistine. Yeah. Where, you know, Frank is kind of like, well, you know, I am. I don't care about these things. And Bernard's like, yeah, you do. And he's like, well, not really. No, I don't. I feel like the film has a good little commentary on the whole philosophy of being a Philistine. That it's not inherently a negative thing. Yeah. You know, it's only negative from kind of a pretentious point of view. It's okay to not care, you know, about art if you don't want to. That's kind of the point, you know? It's not something that you have to necessarily care about or like or dislike. It's just there. 
yeah, nobody is forcing anyone to listen to us right now. <laughs> exactly, you know? <laughs> But, you know, some people don't like movies, some people don't like music, some people don't like paintings, and that that's completely okay. That's just a way of being. There's no right way of living. And I think a great example of that is Ivan, you know, who is the prime example of the Philistine in the film. Mm -hmm. And he's a good guy. Oh, for sure. You know, he's a very accepting partner for Joan. He's a very good coach. You know, he, he more than Bernard, he teaches patience. And he's a fantastic brother to Frank. <laughs> yeah, I was going to He's he's very good at that. He's very good with the children. You know, he doesn't want to impeach on parenthood. He's just okay to be there as a mentor. And I feel like even Frank kind of picks that up mm -hmm. and you see that because obviously he's the younger child. So he's more impressionable. And yet he still finds it easier to take from Ivan than he does his actual father. I mean, he even starts saying brother at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. He says it to Walt and yeah. It's just like, again, it's a small little line that just kind of pushes towards a narrative. Which is interesting because that is exactly what the father tried to do with Frank to imprint his own philosophy onto him and he didn't succeed but Ivan did. And Ivan wasn't trying. And yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the um, the beautiful things about it. I definitely think Joan is pretty much supposed to be the kind of superhero of the film, you know, the mother, because obviously she has her her problems. Mm -hmm. For one, she kind of causes the divorce, which is funny because Bernard kind of pretends that he tried to save the marriage. Yeah, when Joan kind of proves that he didn't. What I wrote down about that moment was, I love how she just starts to laugh about his, like, half-assed way to make amendment attempts. <laughs> <laughs> and not even, like, ten minutes later, you have that scene between him and Walt, where he says, like, I will lend you my first edition of The Naked and the Dead as a present. <laughs> you know, this man this man is the king of half-assed apologies <laughs> and it's funny because he also thinks that the divorce has nothing to do with him yeah which is an outrageously arrogant you know viewpoint but that viewpoint is also mirrored in the way he talks about his career you know It's not only that, it's like his general character. You have all those moments where he alludes to the art world being stupid and that he only didn't succeed because, you know, the others, all those idiots, didn't understand his genius. Yes. It's, he's just kind of a douche. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, and... I feel like, yeah, they are definitely setting up the mother to be kind of like the superhero, even though she is technically, you know, the one that caused the divorce after all. But they even bring this around with Walt, who, you know, is famously the father's boy the entire time. Yeah. Because, you know, when he goes, he finally goes to therapy for stealing the, is it Pink Floyd? Is that the... Yeah. He goes to therapy and fucking... Ken, Ken Lung is like his therapist <laughs> randomly. 
And he asked him to, you know, give him at least a comfortable memory to talk about, you know, a happy memory or whatever. And the first immediate thought that he has is a memory of his mother. Yeah, followed up by a quite, yeah. maybe quite quick realization that his father isn't actually that great. <laughs> From a story perspective, that was probably the only kind of weird moment for me in my experience with this movie, where Walt was really quick with, you know, going through all the steps of therapy, basically, and then in 10 minutes of talking to the therapist. But I, I will grant that he's a teenager, and their minds are very easily malleable and um untanglable you know that they could have something that itches them for for a very long time and they are very very quite capable of having instant epiphanies i feel like his story of the squid and the whale the battle that takes place in like the uh, american museum of natural history i feel like that was a very honest way of having that epiphany yeah you know i feel like the cheap way to have done it was to have him like talk to the mother or talk to the father and him just kind of snap out of it during one of their conversations but it was himself that snapped him out of it his own memory it had to be just a little nudged in the right direction yeah he had to be nudged to figure it out himself because that's all he's really missing is his own self of him, if that makes sense. Like his whole, his own identity. And he, I feel like he kind of realizes he doesn't have that with his father. Out of a pure, you know, looking at the technicals of how the dialogue is written, character arc he goes through, and you know, as you pointed out, him being the one that really helped himself basically overcome this and that he has to grow to a own person. That all makes thematic sense and is well written. I just think out of like the bigger picture looking at it, the fact that it just is such a quick overcoming of his own problems was more my problem with that moment. No, I do get what you mean. I do get what you mean. Also, I love that um it's just a small like little bit, but in that scene, I love that he looks down on the school therapist for having a master's and not a PhD, despite Walt himself being woefully unqualified in basically everything, even having an opinion. <laughs> you know, I love that he's like looking down in the sky like you only have a master's. Meanwhile, this guy is stealing fucking Pink Floyd songs for a school talent show. But then, you know, equally in that scene, he kind of figures out his own way of being humble. So, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's beautiful. I just want to quickly point out, because I don't have any way to, like, kind of beautifully segue into it. I love how Noah Bombat kind of portrays the inappropriate nature of a student and teacher, well, professor and student relationship. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like Bernard says earlier on in the film that a lot of professors like take advantage of their positions and stuff like that. 
when that's exactly what he does. And Walt's kind of, you know, because he idolizes his father so much at first, it doesn't even register to him what's happening. Yeah. You know, he thinks he thinks he's just helping out. Yeah, and he is just himself so yeah, himself. driven crazy that all he can see is, oh, damn, pretty girl is gonna <laughs> move in next room. <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah, I, I love that he just sneakily touched on that without, you know, trying to focus too much on that. I have two specific scenes I quickly want to go into. The first one being in relation to the kids being influenced by their parents. Mm-hmm. I particularly love that in the climax scene between Walt and his girlfriend, I think it's the last dialogue they have together in the movie. Yes, it is, yeah. I love how the whole dialogue from his side is basically a word-for-word quote by his father again. Mm. I don't think he has a single original thought in that dialogue. Also, it's not only him. She is basically only responding with things that her mother or her grandmother have said about Walt. So it's on both ends that they are just not completely formed personalities yet and that they just mainly draw from the things they heard by their parents. But I think there's an extra layer of genius in that because it shows how they are still worlds apart even though they're both doing the same thing. It's in how they do it. Walt is just reciting his father whereas she is explicitly telling him this is what this person said and this is what this person said. Yeah, which is an information that we as an audience need anyways because we haven't been there to know that those are also quotes by the parents and it differentiates them as characters it's beautiful so yeah i feel like her explicit honesty with where these opinions are coming from you know in stark contrast to walt's hidden influence you know just stealing his his father's ideas and words without openly admitting that they're his father's you know words kind of shows how these two people are worlds apart in terms of men for sure yeah the other thing i wanted to point out was actually a directing note i wrote down despite me earlier saying that he isn't necessarily my favorite director, but one of my favorite writers. There's still one moment that I really appreciated here. After the parents had already split up, you have that scene where the father and the mother have a dialogue in her entry doorway. It's an awkward, kind of intense scene and a moment in their relationship where they are actively fighting for the attention of the kids. Yes. And the directing really adds to that. It's handheld, so it might not even jump out as a particularly, you know, precisely crafted moment, but it is. In the classical shot-reverse shot, you would have always those shots looking over the shoulder of one character 
and at the other. And both of the characters in those cases would take over one side of the screen. So cut to one character who is in the frame on the right hand side, cut to the other character. We have his shoulder where he just used to be and that character on the left hand side. Here they are very much lined up to be in the exact same space within the frame. They are not only fighting for the kids' attention, they are fighting for our attention within the frame. They occupy the same space within the movie and neither of them wants to step back or give that up. Yeah, it's beautiful. I really like this movie. He pulled it off probably better than he ever could on a retry. It would definitely not be the same movie, that's for sure. No, I feel like he's too almost refined now to to get something this kind of pure because you know everything since now is very sentimental but it it is also like very clinical execution he's not very rough around the edges anymore you know he's he's very clean with his style the interesting thing about that one is that francis ha feels very much like already being part of that, being part of that controlled environment. Yes. But in that one, he really stripped back, actually. But we'll get to it once we're at Francis. I hard. mean, we can get into that soon, because I, I, I just feel like I don't have too much to say left on this. One final thing I wanted to say was, you already alluded to that, that... The great writers always draw from their own life. Relating to that, I wrote down drawing from real life and applying to fiction. Yes. And I think a great example for that is the whole plagiarism side plot. Since, you know, we already said that Noah Baumbach is kind of Walt, that kind of was a confession of his side. He didn't exactly rip off a Pink Floyd song for a school contest, <laughs> but he did rewrite or rip off a Woody Allen film and <laughs> kind of claimed it as his original work and made a school theater piece surrounding that. So that was kind of his late apology and confession to that happening. <laughs> yeah, I I was I was going to say that um I do think his mirroring of Walt is actually very beautiful because although Walt is kind of shown to be a bit of a dick you you know if you go into it knowing that that's kind of Noah Bombach's confessional is that he is kind of this character or at least um, used to be if, yeah there's what I mean like it's it you know it's going somewhere. And by the end, when he does become, you know, an individual, a free thinker, his future all of a sudden becomes much more brighter. And I feel like that is also the case with Noah Bombach, you know. He was probably maybe arrogant as a teenager. He plagiarized, but, you know, later in life has become one of the more decorated auteurs 
mm-hmm. you know, in cinema, especially in contemporary cinema. I would I would definitely go as far as to say he's one of the more important directors of the 21st century. He's massively, massively important and good. Mm-hmm. He's not like he's consistently batting out eights. You know, he's he's always giving his best. And even a weak bombback is pretty strong for anyone else. Still a pretty else. great role, yeah. yeah. So I guess that, that just kind of gives Walt a more hopeful note, knowing that he is a mirror of Bombach, knowing that Walt could potentially go on to do very great things um, if he just allows himself to. I guess that brings us to ratings. Um, I guess it does, yeah. So... I'm going to give Squid and the Whale a 9 out of 10. To me, it's a 7 out of 10. Still a great movie. Yeah, no, that's a great score still. Okay, I guess that brings us to Francis Ha. This is your favorite bomb back, right? So, I'm just going to let you take it away. Francis Ha. The 2012 released Noah Bombach movie, written together with Greta Gerwig, and starring Greta Gerwig, his then-partner. I love this movie. This is definitely the case where I feel for the protagonist so much, I can see myself in the characters of this movie. Mm -hmm. I love the visual side of it. I adore the aesthetic that they created. And also the general vibe this movie brings across using this mixture of visual, sound, and dialogue. And despite some people seeing this as a somewhat intense movie, which I get, like the existential dread and the psychological terror of pursuing a creative life and potentially failing or being confronted with a potential failure of that endeavor is hard to take if you see yourself in that. I do see all the pain in that and feel it as well. I do, however, still consider this one of my all-time favorite feel-good movies. I just absolutely vibe with every second of this movie you know so we spoke about um wes anderson a little bit earlier in their relationship Mm -hmm. and i feel like the intro to francis ha like the little montage is the most wes anderson noah bombach has ever been it feels massively wes anderson that montage and just to you know straight a little bit off topic it it feels wes anderson without having pastel colors it feels wes anderson without having strictly symmetrical shots you know there there is movement in in the actual characters and stuff like that i don't know if you if if you're too aware of the whole tiktok trend the wes anderson ai generated stuff uh n- no so basically there's a whole tiktok trend of people like 
recreating their lives as if Wes Anderson was making it. I've I've been in many conversations about this on Twitter because there was a there was a video that circulated of you know this this woman um, I'm not going to say a rat or anything but this woman that said that Wes Anderson had worked for years mm-hmm. for for a very very long time to refine his style and kind of perfect it to the point that it is now French Dispatch itself kind of just being a an exhibition of that style. Yeah. And all of that means nothing now because of all these people that have so easily replicated it on TikTok. Uh, I one that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but also for for the point of these TikToks don't even really get it. People think they do. You know, because they have symmetrical shots. They have, you know, Nice, beautiful pastel, pastel colors. colors. Um, they're very kind of whimsical with the music and stuff like that. They might even understand the planar filmmaking yes. of you know characters just going left to right or coming straight at or going straight away from the camera. But that's all not the vibe, not the way it's written. It's just parts of it. There's something so specific to Wes Anderson that you simply cannot capture without being him. And for as invalidated as people think his, you know, um, style is now, I feel like the intro to Francis Ha is the perfect example of how these people will never get it. You know, because this intro is very, very Wes Anderson. And it makes sense because they collaborated a lot at this point. Mm-hmm. And this was roughly at the point, you know, you like you said, 2012. Wes Anderson had pretty much got his style figured yeah. at this point. Um, it's not to the point where it is now. But it it is, you know, the all of the foundations are there at this point. You know, the building blocks. You know, it makes sense that Noah Bombach can slip into that because he's been a part of that process. And that's despite the fact that if you just look at this intro, purely visually speaking, if you turn off the sound, you would probably never think of Wes Anderson. Yes. <laughs> and this this is one of the things, like he creates the vibe and the music is a huge part of that. And yeah, I just I just feel like this intro understands Wes Anderson's style more than Everybody that thinks it's now invalidated because of some fucking stupid <laughs> TikTok trend that doesn't get it. I mean, um, I use the example of the one, the bathroom scene in the Royal Tenenbaums, which I'm assuming you have seen. Yeah, yeah. With the other Wilson, um, I forgot his name, but um, that scene as well is you know very not. It doesn't scream Wes Anderson in a way. You know, it's very dingy. The lighting is. Yeah. The shots aren't especially symmetrical. And the music is dark. It's not fun and whimsical. There's no ukuleles or anything. <laughs> but it is very, very Wes Anderson. And yeah, mm-hmm. I just I feel like the those two examples are just kind of pointing towards how intrinsically unique that style is. And I think Noah Bombach is very good at slipping into it. 
and just as easily slipping out of it. Yeah, I assume that comes from just working with that man so much, you know, that it just so naturally happens. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of Kaufman-Spike Jones situation. Yes. Where the way her was written by Spike Jones, you could feel the influence Charlie Kaufman as a good friend had on him, yet it still feels like a Spike Jones product. Yes. You can definitely feel Spike Jones in there. It doesn't feel like a straight up ripoff by Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I mean. You know, like he he finds his own way in that because, you know, he is part of Wes Anderson's process at the end of the day, or at least was. So he kind of has no choice but to be similar. Talking about that intro, it's kind of insane again, the efficiency of his writing. It's two minutes long, only yes. two minutes. And by the end of it, you are fully invested in this yeah. relationship between these, between these two women. You feel for them. When one scene later, the whole breakup happens between Frances and her then boyfriend, you feel for her and you understand her because how could you leave her best friend? We've just yeah. been with them and they have been through so much together and you feel like you have been with them for ages. Yet it's been like two minutes. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely committed. Just by these little vignettes ripped out of the relationship, talking about the efficiency, the whole breakup scene afterwards. Yes. That scene, from the very beginning of we get introduced to their relationship to the point where they are breaking up and it's the last time we see this guy in the movie, that only lasts four minutes. <laughs> Within those four minutes, we open up with the whole, let's get some cats. I know you have an allergy, but I looked up these cats that won't affect that. Let's move in together. And through that, we get a clear character dynamic. We see that Francis is holding back. We see that the boyfriend is trying to find a solution for both of them and trying to move further in the relationship whilst Francis is obviously still hesitant mm -hmm. and not really fully committing. Then we get the whole comedic misunderstanding moment with the <laughs> with this are we breaking up? Are we not breaking up? Did you just mean that in the way you said it? And it really works in this case. Because we misunderstand it as well, or at least I did. Yeah. And I think it's written in a way where most people would. Because most of the times when in a script a problem only occurs because the people didn't talk to each other, it feels cheap. Yeah. It feels like a cope-out out of creating actual problems, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And here it doesn't. It, it feels natural. It, it also is mainly played for comedy and it doesn't drag on like once that is established, I think like one and a half minutes later, the whole thing is over and they have actually broken up. <laughs> and all of that happens within four minutes. We get introduced to this relationship and we 
lose that relationship within four minutes and it doesn't feel pointless either because it gives us a clear insight to where Frances is with her life, with the things she's planning and the things she's maybe not ready to commit to yet. I don't feel like I missed anything. I don't feel like it was rushed. I feel like I understand the characters and the decisions. I, f I understand their differences and why the relationship didn't work out. The characters aren't written cheap. He isn't written as an asshole, so we have an easy in to Francis' character as in, oh yeah, you better break up with that asshole, we, we don't like him either, you're better off without him, Francis. Like, she is kind of the reason it didn't work out. Yet, you still love her at that point. I feel like I understood her, even though she is so flawed. It's incredible how he manages to juggle all of these things with such an efficiency. This is such an incredible opening to a movie. This film, more than pretty much any of his films, is a brilliant demonstration of how economical he can be, just with time. Mm -hmm. He, I mean, both The Squid and the Well and Francis Ha come in at about an hour 20, you know, which is fairly short. Yeah. You know, the average film, you know, now is about hour 40 to two hours. Absolutely. And he manages to squeeze more into this than the average film could hope to. And Francis Ha is one of, you know, it's one of my lesser bombacks. It's not like the bottom. I've seen a lot, so it would, you know, take something to get to the bottom. But um, it's one of the lesser ones for me. I don't, I don't watch it as often. It, I feel like this is my Your Squid and the Whale, you know? I appreciate it more than I like it. I I really love everything that he's doing. I mean, for one, the black and white. Often, you know, when people use black and white, it can seem like a a pretentious thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're they're doing something gimmicky, you know, to kind of give the film a prestigious look. But the way he uses it here, it's like Black and white is inherently romantic. You know, there's something about displaying certain settings and storylines in black and white that just feel more vibrant than color. Also, I feel like because textures are such a big thing with black and white, you get drawn into the faces of the characters more. Yes. So you're really focused on the emotions going on because there's not a lot of other things to really distract you. Yes. And I, it's so beautiful, his use of black and white. I mean, I, I know we spoke about Wes Anderson a lot, but he uses black and white in the same way in The French Dispatch with um, the one artist, you know, um, because his whole story in the end is, you know, about kind of a sort of romance. Mm-hmm even though it's not explicitly about romance. It's about a lot of things. And I feel like, yeah, it's just, it's an intrinsically romantic lens, you know, a way of looking at the world. It's not even romance in the sense of relationships and things like that, but sort of just romanticizing life and romanticizing settings. Yeah, and I feel like because you are taking away 
all of the the vibrancy of something you are kind of looking at it objectively you know you're looking at it as it is oftentimes that can make something a lot more beautiful yeah i think this film very much does that another thing that i just really love about the film is francis herself absolutely greta gerwig was the perfect choice for this character that is her like nobody else could have. yes this is what i mean <laughs> she wrote that character she is that character it's irreplaceable i feel like she, because she had such a heavy hand in writing this that character is kind of you know autobiographical in a way for her you know the same way a lot of characters for bombac are him yes and I feel like, you know, this was her bomb-back moment. You know, she does this quite often anyway, you know, with, like, Ladybird. Mm -hmm. And you can see, honestly, the, the progression between those two characters in completely separate movies. That protagonist could easily grow into this protagonist. Absolutely. For one, I can definitely see how these two have become a couple. Yeah. You know, they are they they very much look at like these kind of things in, in in a similar in a similar fashion. And yeah, I just simply think there's nobody else that could have done this the same way. I think Bombach weirdly struck gold with Greta, just in the writing and acting. This film just simply couldn't exist mm -hmm. without her hand. I'm glad that this is kind of part of her filmography just as much as his. Because, just to quickly give Greta Gerwig some love, yeah, she's absolutely wonderful. Her her mind is incredible. She's amazing. She um her her adaptation of Little Women is kind of you know it's also one of her like white noise moment because I know mm -hmm. like she loved that book growing up so much, and it is a part of her. Um, so even though yeah. she made Ladybird, which is pretty autobiographical to her experience in life, Little Women is an adaptation of a book, so it's, you know, she doesn't really have an insert, mm -hmm. but the whole film itself is an insert of her, um, same way White Noise is. And also the way she changed the ending of the yes. book in the movie feels like Gerwig directly complaining about one part of the story that she had to fix yes, in yeah. her mind. Um, and she's an absolute gem. And I feel like it's funny because, you know, Barbie is like, it, it's not yet out. And it, you know, people are super excited for Barbie. You know, even general audiences are very excited for Barbie. And a lot of that is, you know, due to it being Barbie and due to it being Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling and you know, it looks aesthetically crazy and stuff like that. And I'm just over here being super excited about Greta Gerwig making another movie. <laughs> yeah, this is what I, I, you know, I'm talking to people, you know, out and about and at work and stuff. And I'm saying, oh, I can't, I can't wait for Barbie. You know, yeah. I'm super excited for Barbie. And, you know, and I've got grown men looking at me like, why are you excited for a Barbie movie? And I'm like, I'm not excited for a Barbie movie. I'm excited yeah. for a Greta Gerwig movie. Exactly. I'm so glad that she is getting something this big, mm -hmm. you know, that is going to make her so accessible to a mainstream audience. I do just hope that um, 
that film doesn't drown out her contribution. You know, some films are just bigger than the, the director, but that director is then always linked to that work as well. You know, like something... You know, Jurassic Park is a good example where Jurassic Park is huge. You know, everyone's seen it. Pretty much everyone likes it. But everyone knows it as a Steven Spielberg movie. Yes. You know, no one no one is holding Jurassic Park over Steven Spielberg. And I don't... I, I'm, I'm very... I feel like I'm very protective of people like Greta Gerwig when they enter a mainstream field. Because I want, I want this film in the future to be her Jurassic Park in a way. You know, I want it to be, oh, Greta Gerwig presents, you know, Barbie. Mm-hmm. Rather than, oh, yeah, that, that Barbie movie directed by who? You know? Yeah. But yeah. Um, and this film, Frances Ha, was the first time that I had ever seen her. And I remember just watching her performance and just thinking she was special. Yeah. You know, it's it, it was the same feeling I had when I first ever watched Marriage Story because that was the first ever Bombac I had seen. And just watching that film, I didn't know the man who directed it. I didn't know his name. I just knew that he was something. And that's exactly how I felt about Francis Ha, you know. Um in the performance department and writing department. I knew they were linked. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew she would have had a hand in that. So yeah, um, even though I don't have a lot to say about this film, that that those are mostly my thoughts. Uh, you already said a lot. Quite a lot of things that I, I'm going to try to successfully recollect and respond to now. Sorry. Oh good, oh good. <laughs> you also touched upon the efficiency of Noah Baumbach and you specifically wanted to also remark on the efficiency of the writing however this one in particular is absolutely just an efficient movie in any regards you could think of this was shot right after Greenberg which was to date his biggest budget thing also shot in LA in the classical studio system basically so with this one he really tried to reduce everything and return to a more lenient workflow so he created a real skeleton crew basically of a very small team very lo-fi technology they shot the first time on digital for this film and they didn't even go the route of okay let's get an re or a red camera you know a digital cinema camera those companies that specialized on digital cameras for the big screen they instead wanted to have it very low budget and very accessible in the tools they use in honor of the film movements that inspired this piece in particular, but also Noah Baumbach's career as a whole a little bit, which would be the French New Wave with, you know, a lack of artificiality about it, no additional lighting other than natural 
already in place lights of the location. <laughs> and also the American equivalent of that, uh, John Cassavetes, who often gets credited as basically starting the indie film movement. He was really one of the first guys to get movies off the ground and taken seriously, completely independent of the big studio system. So the camera they actually ended up using for shooting this movie was a Canon 5D, which is a consumer-grade camera. Like, it, don't get me wrong, it's a high-budget consumer-grade camera, but it is still, you know, if, if you think of the camera your dad used, you know, the, the classical camera body and the lens and is sitting off to the side on it and a little screen at the back. That's basically how a Canon 5D also looks, just in a little bulkier, I guess. Digital filming at that point, and specifically using non-cinema cameras, was such an experimental thing. They couldn't even shoot directly into black and white. So what they did was, first of all, experiment a lot and invent a workflow that would kind of proof that you, they could get to a usable end result using these cameras. And then in shooting, they used an external monitor on which they turned down the saturation all the way so that on the monitor itself, you would always see the black and white despite the camera actually filming in color. I don't know too much about like the behind the scenes of this one. You know, it's more so I've just never really bothered to look into it. But I've always assumed that the backstory of this would be very interesting. Especially considering, um, I mean, again, linking to marriage story. Because that is very autobiographical. The play that takes place in that film is pretty much a metaphor for this film. Um, because... You mean the dance that happens by the end in Francis no. You know the um the play where he cheats initially um from the beginning where Oh you're talking about like the, the um, play in yeah. Irish, sorry. Oh okay. Yeah yeah. Yeah, the this film it well, not that play yeah. in Marriage Story mm -hmm. is like a metaphor for this film because this is where his um, relationship with Greta Gerwig actually really started. Yes. They became a partnership in 2011, which, you know, if you just do the math, <laughs> that's when the shooting of this film took place. But he was actually still married up until 2013. And though they had, him and his wife at the time, had split in 2010, I think he says, there's still a massive sense of infidelity on that. Mm -hmm. One, because it's so new. There's a um, kind of inherent betrayal in it. Because obviously he's known Greta Gerwig for a lot longer yeah. than this film. Um, the taking place of this film, you know, he had known her for a very, very long time. So for him to find kind of his new love on this, whilst also being, you know, married weirdly ties into both the squid and the whale and 
marriage story because you know it's led to believe that kind of in marriage story when charlie does cheat which we know has happened before the film starts it wasn't really an affair we just know you know she's angry that he slept with her yeah it's not explicitly an affair she's just angry that it happened and you know they're not divorced yet and it's just someone that they both worked with that they knew i assume because you know he is he had known Greta Gerwig for so long that she was pretty much a household name for him um and his wife so yeah i just i just feel like uh this film has an interesting role in their relationship's history also and how it impacts Noah Bombach's films later down the line for sure yeah cuz Greta is definitely a big influence on him. Yes. You can feel her involvement in pretty much everything after this. Absolutely. I mentioned something at the very top of this episode. Noah Baumbach is a very sincere director, but more than anything, he's very sentimental. And I feel like him before Francis Ha and him after Francis Ha are two very different kind of sentimental. Mm-hmm. He, you know, before, especially like in The Squid and the Whale, it is autobiographical, and he has elements of himself in those films. When he makes films back then, even like stuff with, you know, like Greenberg and whatnot, it's he's more interested in the ideas of those characters and what they represent, rather than the actual... Um, living in those characters, he's very. He was very good back then at assigning characters, you know, um, kind of emotions. Whereas after Francis Ha, in stuff like While We're Young and the Meyerowitz stories mm-hmm. and Marriage Story, characters became a lot more muddy, a lot more kind of morally grey. A lot more human. He kind of becomes a directorial empath with every character. And I I, I genuinely think that's entirely Greta Gerwig's influence on him. In the earlier films, he has surrogates of him. In his later work, it feels like kind of every character has a, a has a part of his soul in them. Yeah. Even in Marriage Story, where even though Charlie is a complete reflection of Noah Bombach. Nicole also feels like a part of him, and he treats her with equal respect as himself, which I think is a very important factor. And I I do think a lot of this has come from Greta, because we've seen from her films that she is massively empathetic and sentimental. She very much loves the subtle emotions and the nuances of the emotional spectrum. And I think Noah applies that a lot more in his directorial efforts and writing um, since then. Especially, you know, in stuff like the Meyerowitz stories, which I know you haven't seen, but you definitely should. I will. I will definitely check out more of his work. Yeah, the Meyerowitz stories is fucking fantastic. It's very beautiful. I can very much see how she has impacted him over the years, which the best partners do. You know, they make you better 
you know, and they take the best parts of you and they amplify those. So yeah, I think it's no coincidence that Noah Bombach has become a much stronger director as time has gone on. It's not in the way that other directors become better, because some don't. You know, they have a lot of varying quality, and sometimes they make a better film than last time, sometimes they make one worse. And that's just the nature of filmmaking, you know? Some people say Scorsese's best films were in the 70s and 80s. He's not explicitly got better over time. Same with Spielberg, Tarantino, Fincher, um, all these people. Gaspar Noé. There's, there's arguments to be made for all of their catalogue, you know? Whereas I feel like Noah Bombach has definitely been on an upward trajectory with the weird outlier of The Squid and the Whale. And yeah, and I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Yeah. To get back to Francis Harfer a bit, I'm gonna take an example out of this one in particular because I wanted to talk a bit more about Noah Bombach's writing. I love how he applies structures to moments where you wouldn't expect that kind of structure. Something he does here quite a few times is to give us dramatic moments written as if they were a joke with a setup, a little story, and ending it up with a pun you didn't see coming. There's the scene here where Frances gets told by the dance company that she can't participate in the Christmas show. Mm -hmm. It opens up with this little introduction line of Frances saying, Sorry I'm late, I always take ages to leave. Perfect little sneaky setup. Followed up by the whole explanation giving and her and us finding out about the little story and explanation given both to her and us as an audience that she will in fact not be partaking in this important play. Mm -hmm. And we end up the dialogue with the company leader giving this empathetic line of take your time. Yeah. To which Francis replies with the unexpected but perfectly set up pun of I always do, I can't help it. It is not like the scene was the funny part before we get to the serious moment. This was a funny portrayal of the serious moment. And I feel like you never get to experience something like this quite the way Noah Baumbach does it. And it's so much to me about why his stories feel special. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally agree. Something similar actually happens in Marriage Story, where Noah Baumbach talked about that he wrote it as if it was a musical, which you kind of wouldn't expect just watching the movie, but it makes sense as in why everything flows so well together, because it is written just very rhythmically. What an interesting way to approach writing. Talking about the influences, a lot of the music playing throughout this movie was taken directly from songs that were played in movies during the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting thing happening here where 
a lot of the times I will have a problem if I can hear a song and my mind already has that song connected to a scene of another movie, particularly if they then can't live up to that initial scene. Because what happens is that I will hear the song, <laughs> my brain will go into detective mode and be like, oh damn, where, where have I heard this before? And I get distracted and once I figure out what movie it is, I will th usually think of how great of a scene that was in that movie and my brain starts to compare these two scenes and who used it better and it completely takes you out of it. Here, however, we have an example where they used a song that was already used in The 400 Blows by Truffaut, which is a movie I have seen before, which I enjoyed quite a lot, and I didn't even pick up on it. I didn't realize that that was used somewhere else before because Francis Hart just completely owned it. They molded it into the DNA of Francis Hart to a degree where I didn't even think twice about it and that it might be from somewhere else. One more note on the music. There's this montage where... Throughout the montage, Frances kind of gets closer and closer to her absolute down point. It's getting sadder and sadder, and the music playing in the background, which I believe is like trombones, maybe, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. is this beautiful tune. And by the end of it, when we really approach the low point, throughout the last four bars, the melody makes some slight variation, just a few notes changed, and all of a sudden we end up with the melody of One is the Loneliest Number, which again is a song I really associate with Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson, but it didn't rip me out of it, because it felt like a tasteful, creative new take on including it. And it is also so short that I, by the time I notice it, I am kind of just delighted at what just happened. Yeah. And it's already gone, so I don't even get the time to really think about Magnolia or that scene and, or that use case, you know? You are right. Like, if he had just simply played the song, it kind of would have felt cheap. And if there's anything that Noah Baumbach isn't, is cheap. You know, he never achieves anything the easy way. <laughs> I guess on a more meta level, this movie was actually quite cheap, but yeah, <laughs> I catch your point. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's what I mean. Like, you know, metaphorically, he's not cheap. He never achieves anything in a way that feels not earned. And I feel like if he had just, you know, played One is the Loneliest Number straight over the over the scene, it would have felt like a cheap way to get the emotion that he wanted. Yeah. So yeah, I, I am definitely glad. And I guess my last thing is the way he earns the finale just is magnificent. For once, I love how we see almost the entire performance by the dancers that Francis choreographed. We get some reaction shots to it, but mainly we get to experience the thing she created 
and it absolutely feels like a Frances Ha choreography. You can feel the dorkiness of her in the way the dancers move. Yes. And this also is resembled within the costumes, you know, all of these dancers have slight variations to their costumes. It's not very clinically clean what they are doing. The other and emotionally bigger moment about the ending is when we return to the thing set up in probably the most famous monologue of Francis Ha that often get shared in like video clips, where at this awkward party throughout the middle of the film, Francis makes that monologue about what she wants out of a relationship. That one moment where you look across the room, find each other's eyes, and even though you are both occupied in a different conversation, mm -hmm. you feel this moment. You get like this additional dimension that just the two of you recognize. And throughout the movie, we never get to that relationship. You know, starting from six minutes into the movie, Francis is single. And she stays single throughout the runtime. But we still get that payoff of that moment. And that is the payoff to the important relationship, the actual first relationship we set up in the movie in the two minutes prior to the only relationship in like the traditional sense she has throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, agreed. Nothing to add. So, ratings for Francis Ha. 7 out of 10, yeah. Yeah, and there we have the mirrored image of earlier. To me, this is a 9 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so, marriage story? Marriage story it is. I guess I'm going to start at the beginning. I adore this opening. I think it's a very beautiful display of how you can love someone that isn't good for you and also you for them. Because, you know, the whole thing is about them telling each other what they love about each other, even though, you know, it turns out they're actually not doing that. They've only written it. Mm -hmm. um, but just the fact that they haven't said it, so you know it's not fake. You know, this is their genuine thoughts. Yeah. Um, because if they were fake thoughts, then they would have been much easier to say. Mm. So it's true, genuine love. I can't remember who, who I heard say this, and I think it might have been Noah Bombach on like a Hollywood Reporter roundtable thing. But someone, I'm pretty sure it was Bombach, described the film as a love story told through the lens of divorce. Yes, that was Noah Bombach himself. And yeah, I, I think I saw the very same roundtable. The start of it all was his attempt to write a love story. And with him just having gone through divorce, this was kind of his most relatable way into what it means to be married. Yes, so, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I thought I thought it was. And I think yeah, no, that's a it's a perfect summary of this film. Because this film isn't really about divorce. It is, it absolutely is, but it's more so about 
the different forms in which love can present itself. Mm-hmm. Because love can even present itself as hate. And it's very easy to hate somebody you love because you you know them so well. Yeah. And they know you so well. You know, the access to your entire spectrum of emotions is granted because you love them and you give them your complete self and that leaves you open for all of it. Mm-hmm. Man, the film is just, it's hard. It's very difficult. Yeah, it is definitely the least wholesome Noah Baumbach movie I've seen. Yes. It continues what we already touched upon in The Squid and the Whale, where even the self-insert Noah Baumbach character isn't portrayed in the most charming way. Yeah, no. It's very honest. That even starts in that beginning montage, where not in a, oh, he's a dick way, but in a very self-aware way, he, one of the things he wrote down was how she has strong arms and can always open the jar for him. Which is <laughs> yes. such a great subversion of gender roles straight at yeah. the beginning. I mean, on the topic of that, it's like, you know, as we've spoken, you know, um, Noah Baumbach is a very sentimental filmmaker and a sentimental writer. Mm-hmm. Those kind of traits are associated more with femininity, you know, with women. The whole being empathetic and stuff like that and emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Baumbach is very much not a director that could have contributed to the Nick Cage action trilogy we discussed last time. No. You know, he... He's not any sort of um, presenting in any typical masculine way Mm. what we would stereotypically assign to masculinity. Which does not mean at all that he isn't attractive. You know, there's still that moment where the the babysitter kind of has that uh, Freudian slip up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she just said, oh shit, you're so attractive. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Which is absolutely true, you know, she's like speaking for the audience at that point. And there's nothing of the feminine side of his that takes away anything of that. Yeah, no, he's not what we would assign the stereotype of masculinity to be. Um, He does very much carry a lot of feminine traits. And I feel like that, A definitely is in his corner as a filmmaker because the things that we typically assign to femininity are his strongest suits but especially here (laughs) especially here it feels like it really needed a lack of masculinity yeah one of the biggest strength of the script in my opinion is that it really doesn't take sides Yes, no. Which is an incredible feat, considering that it is literally written by one of the two sides involved in the story, you know? And he manages to write his ex-wife's character with so much love and empathy. It's incredible how he was able to just, you know, put his ego to the side to that degree. It is an incredibly impartial 
take on the entire thing. I actually have a note to say I change my opinion on whose side I'm on every single time I watch this. Because sometimes I watch it and I'm like, yeah, no, Nicole's right, you know, in this in this whole thing. And then sometimes I watch it and I'm like, man, fuck Nicole, Charlie's right. You know, and that's kind of the point, I think, is that both of them are right, just depending on who you're looking at. Just to quickly add to that, I could never take sides <laughs> between the two of those. I'm always sitting in between chairs and my major takeaway is, oh man, there was a shitty, you know? <laughs> oh man, that, no. I'm not that kind of person, man. <laughs> I, 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 I get very invested. Oh yeah, I'm invested, man. I'm just like, you know. No, like I mean, I get like personally invested. Like I'm like, oh man, fuck Nicole. Like, like she did it to me or something. <laughs> I don't hate either of them. Oh no. I fucking hate Nora. <laughs> man. Well, this is the thing. I have, I have a lot of notes on both of the lawyers, and they are the true villains of this story. You know, because as soon as the the lawyers became involved, everything elevated instantly. You know, the tension, the drama, the spitefulness. Um, and it was like no holds barred from that point. Especially when he hires Jay and fires Bert. Mm -hmm. um, the gloves come off. And even moments where, you know... When we see certain moments, like, you know, when she's drunk a bit too much wine, she slips down the stairs. It's like a very human, sincere, but kind of funny moment. Yeah. But then later on, that's used as, you know, ammunition. And again, it's like when the car seat, you know, the whole thing happens. When they're both putting the car seat in and they're kind of in each other's way and they're struggling and then they both have like a little laugh about it. Because it's a ridiculous situation. And then later on, that's used as ammunition against Charlie. And you know, without having, you know, been told that that is the lawyers that have created that. Absolutely. Like in those moments, what we see is the reaction of the attacking side, basically, and how uncomfortable they are with the fact that this is brought up as a weapon right now. Yeah. Because, you know, to them, it's impacting them more than it is, you know, the other person. Because not only is that being used against, you know, someone they love, it's also being used on their behalf without their approval. You know, they don't want that. Charlie especially, because he didn't want lawyers at all. But on the subject of lawyers, although Nora gets on my nerves, Jay equally does. Mm -hmm. However... I loved every fucking scene with Ray Liotta. That man could act. A hot take here, but Ray Liotta <laughs> was kind of a good actor. Um, what? <laughs> fuck me. Like, the first scene with him is insanity. And I love how he's trying to explain to Charlie what Nora will do. Yeah. Because he knows, right? Because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. He knows that's what he would do, therefore he knows that's what she will do. His, his, not his partner, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, the guy that, uh, the guy that works there with him. 
says the line that criminal lawyers see bad people at their best, but divorce lawyers see good people at their worst. Yeah. And I think that one little line is the summary of the entire movie. You know, it, divorce brings out the worst in the best people. And I think that's why the film opens with both of them kind of explaining the best qualities of each other. Because the film is like immediately trying to tell you that these two are great people. They're very fantastic of the, the individual things that they do. And this situation is going to make them look like the ugliest people. In a similar fashion as to how Francis Ha opens, this is a perfect in for us to instantly fall in love with these characters and get to know them in a, a very efficient manner that also works in the in-universe logic, you know? Yeah. Because this movie is even less about the relationship itself, because it, you know, it kind of starts with the relationship ending, but we still need some sort of foundation to care about this relationship ending. So it had to be extremely efficient about it. Yeah, he's, it, again, like, you don't think too much of that scene. But, you know, he's so good at doing that. He's so natural. And, by the way, I know I was praising Ray Liotta for being a great actor and all. Everybody in this is great. I think, honestly, sincerely, this is probably everybody in this film's best performance. Scarlett Johansson. Absolutely killing it. When, when she first goes to meet Nora... And she's kind of just explaining the story of their, you know, relationship and stuff. And how she's now realizing what her part was the entire time. I just kind of had this weird realization that she's one of the best working actors. Mm -hmm. And not just actresses, actors, period. She's absolutely fantastic. And it's really upsetting how she's been used. MCU swallowing her for like a decade. <laughs> yeah. Like her talent is grossly misused consistently, mm -hmm. even in things that aren't in the MCU. She's in a lot of just weird schlock like Lucy or the weird Ghost in a Shell movie. It's just like she's capable of so much. I was trying to think of other great performances by her right now. And I think there's at least one more contestant for mm. what's my favorite performance of her. Maybe two if we count voice acting with her. I Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. Very, very different performance, but such a wild out there performance in Under the Skin. Yes. That performance is insane. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, this might be my favorite by her. Yeah, it's kind of like her magnum opus, you know? Yeah, no, she's just tragically underused. And it's more evident when she's right next to Adam Driver, who isn't underused. He's in some shitty things, but he generally picks scripts very well. And he's very good in those scripts. And, you know, oftentimes he very much elevates whatever movie he's in. And um, when she's right next to him, especially, say, you know, the argument scene? Yeah. 
when they're both just giving their absolute everything, there there is not a point where you think one is doing any much better than the other. No, no. They are absolutely matching, yeah. Yeah, they are both just absolutely giving it all. So yeah, I just... It's incredible that these two was able to come together. Just to think about the fact that if you look at either these performances individually, you would feel bad for whoever has to act out the other side of this argument. Yeah. <laughs> Each performance in a vacuum is like the best performance you've ever seen. You know, and you're like, wow, I feel bad for anyone else in this scene. But then just weirdly enough, that's exactly what you think about the other person in that scene. But they did. They matched each other. Yeah, especially that argument scene. Jesus fucking <laughs> bright. Adam Driver, I feel like, obviously gets the shine of that scene. He has the bigger outburst, yeah. Yeah, he has the bigger kind of slice. But I feel like he doesn't. He has a bigger slice of the argument, but not that scene. Because, obviously, he has the biggest, like, outburst at that fucking, at the end. You know, and, uh, as soon as she mentions, like, his father, and he's like, fucking, don't compare me to... And then Which, just... really, real quick interjection, the, that quote really hit different this time around, knowing when going in that the father in Squid and the Whale is the father referred to here. Yes. I was like, yeah, don't compare him to that guy. That guy was awful. <laughs> mm -hmm. Also, I feel like once you see the Meyerowitz stories, um, you'll also get more of a grasp on that as well, because that film is very much about um, the relationship between father and sons. It's a big thing, because um, it both Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler play brothers, and... Dustin Hoffman's the father and yeah it's about like their individual relationships with that father and I assume that you know both of those uh, surrogates for him and his brother whilst we're uncomparing this to Squid and the Whale I <laughs> I, I laughed at that moment when he's at the theater company and that older dude comes up to him and gives him the advice to fuck as much as he can right now <laughs> which is which is basically the very same advice as dad gave him yep. in yep. The Squid and the Whale. Mm-hmm. It was awful advice from both of them. <laughs> 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 My way earlier point was that um Adam Driver has the big outburst, you know, the very the, the pinnacle of that climax, I should say, of that argument where he's like, um, every day I wake up and I wish you were dead. Um, that whole thing. And then straight after that, he breaks down. And she comforts him, telling him that it's okay and stuff. And that's why I th I feel like he has the shine in the argument, because, you know, he is the climax of the argument. But she has equal share in the scene because she's, like, the calm down of the argument. Yeah, she's such a strong character that even in that extreme of a moment between the two of them she can still distance herself enough to you know comfort him similar in a way to how Noah Baumbach can emphasize with her in the writing yes. of this movie you know
just to quickly go back while we were comparing it to um, Squid and the Whale, because these films are very much kind of a, a duology. Yeah, yeah. You see Henry in this film kind of move away from Charlie. You know, in this divorce, he is picking his mother. Except for, obviously, at the end where he kind of comes to the conclusion where he takes both um, pretty much equally. You see Charlie not fight against it. He's very much okay with it. And, um, you know, it was that moment, say, like, when he was in the bed with Nicole and Henry. Henry goes like, Dad, you go now, Mom, stay. And, you know, Nicole's like, no, he's only just got here. And Charlie's like, no, it's okay. And it's fine. And he just leaves. And I feel like that has so much more power with the context of knowing that in, you know, in the squid and the whale, when those kids were taking sides, the parents were still, you know, very much trying to play that child against the other parent, you know, as we said before. And it became a very much a selfish venture on the parent's side to, you know, have the children choose them. And ultimately, that's what, yeah, leads his father, you know, to lose Walt, or otherwise known as Noah, you know. He smothers him so much with trying to take him that he loses him. I feel like that's Charlie not making the same mistake, you know, and that's Noah not making the same mistake. And in the end, it works because, you know, his son comes back to him and they have a great relationship. And I think that's very beautiful. And it's, it's again, one of those moments that if you just watch this film and you have no context of the squid and the whale, it's great. You know, it still shows a lot of character in Charlie that he's like this. He is very much a great father. But then with the context of the squid and the whale, it adds so much uh, more depth to his character as to why he's a good father, not just that he is, and where he's learned to be. Mm -hmm. There's a moment earlier on that is kind of a foreshadowing to the way she comforts him after the fight scene. It's half an hour into the movie, and they are already way down the line of, okay, we are definitely going to split up. Mm-hmm. But still, when he announces to her that he won the grant, that money for the theater piece, she's instantly and absolutely, without any playing it up, feeling for and with him. Yes. Like 30 seconds into her reaction, you can see that the reality of where the relationship is right now is creeping back into her head but she still is there for him. Exactly. Again, that goes towards the whole, this is a love story. You know, they do love each other. I mean, it very much even goes down to straight up the title, which is Marriage Story. It's not a divorce story, you know? The film's not called Divorce Story. It's called Marriage Story. Because these are two people that are kind of spiritually married for life. You know, through Henry, they they kind of just are. You know, they're they are a union. Um, there's one there's one part in the argument where she screams um something in the veins of, "I can't believe I have to know you for the rest of my fucking life" or whatever. 
that didn't really like register to me too much until this time around. Where I'm like, yeah, she like does. She has to know him because of Henry. You know, she can't just choose not to have him in her life now. You know, because he's the father of her child, they are now just linked forever. And obviously she's saying that in a very awful way at the time. But as we know, that's not an awful thing. Yeah. In the end, you know, they they very much do get along. And I love, you know, in the time jump at the end, he meets Nicole's current partner. Yeah. And he's okay with it, you know? He's not he's not mean, he's not awful. He talks to him like a fucking human being. <laughs> and again, Squid and the Whale, the way his father reacted to his mother, mm-hmm. you know, his new partner. It was very rejectful. Mm. Because, you know, um, her partner, again, kind of like Ivan, isn't presented to be a scholar of any kind. You know, he, he, he doesn't seem artsy in the way that Charlie is. You know, he's not into theater or whatever. But that doesn't mean that he's not worthy. And yeah, I feel like that's, again, him kind of learning from his father's mistakes or growing past his father's faults. It's just beautiful storytelling. Yeah. I just have a few notes, then I'll just quickly run through. One, I love that for Halloween, Charlie dresses up as the Invisible Man. Fantastic costume, by the way. Brilliant fucking costume. Um, But yeah, great metaphor. Just, yeah, really good. Also, the film isn't all very tragic. The The scene between Nicole, Cassie, and um, their mother trying to, like, rehearse <laughs> giving him the papers, you know, serving him, is fucking hilarious. The actual scene where they give him <laughs> the, the papers is even more hilarious to me. How she apologizes, like... She takes it back and then gives it to... You are served. <laughs> it's so funny. What an hilarious that scene. actress, I think her name is Merritt Weaver or something like that. Brilliant. She rules, yeah. And she's only in the film for a few minutes, but those few minutes definitely count. And the mother as well, um, played by Julie Haggerty. It's really great. Uh do I do I have anything else? Oh, I just really liked the quote that uh, Bert says where he says, um, you, you're always a better husband in divorce. You know, stuff like that. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, really good. And finally, the gate closing scene. Yeah, when the power goes out at Nicole's house and Charlie goes over there with Henry to help her close the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful visual storytelling. Because, you know, that gate closing is obviously them putting up that final barrier between them. He's also helping to put up that barrier. Yeah, that's the last scene before Charlie hires Jay. Mm -hmm. Which, obviously, before that, he was with Bert, who was very much reaching a settlement with Nora. Yeah. But then, you know, they cut to the scene and then they put up this final blockade between them and then he hires jay 
and then instantly they're at like war from that moment. So yeah, I just it, beautiful, and I really like the final note of her giving Henry to Charlie to go home with, even though it's her day. Yeah, because Nora explains to her, doesn't she, like um at the party or whatever, that she settled in on getting Nicole an extra day even though Nicole didn't want it because even right down to the end it was still just a game to Nora you know it was still very much about the win she didn't actually care about Nicole as much as she said she did Um, it was very much about her winning because she doesn't like Charlie and that was very much not the point of the divorce because Nicole does. I guess th- those are my final notes before you can go to what you want to talk about. Just a few things. Yep. There's another great example here of, you know, a dramatic moment written like a joke, where the first time she talks to Nora and Nora comforts her and she opens up as to all of the things that led to the divorce. And it's this beautiful somber moment between the two of those and then she just ends with and i'm pretty sure he fucked the stage designer <laughs> yeah absolutely unexpected pun by the end mm-hmm. within that scene is also one of the key lines that started this movie this movie writing process at least he says his approach usually involves having already specific lines in his head yeah and starting from there this line then informs how the character is motivated which informs how the scene will play out and that scene then informs how the general story will play out and the line in question that kind of started this movie was the line by her saying oh i don't care about the money Mm mm-hmm which is, I think, very telling as to how this movie ended up being so empathetic as a whole. On that roundtable discussion you pointed out earlier, mm-hmm. Adam Driver was asked about those difficult scenes where you have to act out the crazy emotions like the big fight scene. If it's easier for him to get those out of the way early on in the shooting process or later on when he feels he understands the character more. And Adam Driver goes into how whenever you get a new script and you read through those scenes, you usually end up with like two or three scenes that are so scary to look forward to shooting that no matter when they are shot, he always feels underprepared and ahead of schedule. And with this movie, each and every day had like one scene that he was scared of and felt underprepared and ahead of schedule. Yeah, no, I I, I, rem- I remember that actually. I remember seeing that. Because um, I also thought that was a very funny thought that like, you know, they try and put off all the the heavy stuff, but every scene is the heavy stuff. Yeah. (laughs) He also talked about influences on this movie again. 
he was asked if he saw any divorce movies prior to this, like, you know, Kramer versus Kramer or something like that. And he said, in the contrary, he specifically wanted to avoid all of those. Like, he knew Kramer versus Kramer, obviously, he has seen it before, but he tried to not, you know, refresh his mind with those images. He wanted to mainly draw from his own life experiences. What he did, however, mention as an influence, which you kind of wouldn't expect, but makes sense once you think a few more seconds about it, is Persona by Ingmar Bergman, oh. which is a very abstract piece of art. Yeah. And <laughs> this is <laughs> in a stark contrast to the very grounded, realistic movie that Marriage Story is. Two things that really connect it are, first of all, he wanted to take inspiration by the way Bergman frames faces, in particular in this movie. And the thematic takeaway kind of worse that in Persona two people are somewhat slowly becoming one person merging together yeah and in marriage story the kind of same thing happens just played out backwards where two people that kind of were a union slowly fall apart and i thought that was just a really interesting turned on its head approach to being influenced by other art. So I guess I'll take it away with my rating. This is in between the other two. It's an 8, but it's closer to a 9. Fantastic movie. I'm going to give it a 10. Damn. I, th I do think it's perfect. I don't think there's a single aspect of this film. I... I... I would change. So, yeah, I think it's a 10. I think it's Noah Bombach's kind of only perfect film. Okay, and with that said, next episode, we're going to be joined by a special guest to discuss So Bad They're Good Movies, starting with High School Musical, a Disney Channel original film from 2006 that launched the careers of both Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. It's a musical about musicals with a quadruple platinum soundtrack that went number one on Billboard's Top 200 twice. After High School Musical, we find ourselves on a downward trajectory. First with Velocipasta, a somewhat self-aware trash movie of 2018. It follows a priest on a journey of self-discovery and questions religion along the way. Monster transformation included. And finally, we are also going to discuss the newest piece of art by renowned filmmaker Neil Breen, a sci-fi epic about identity, the limitations of humanity, that delivers an absolute lack of understanding of how movies work. If you don't want to get spoiled for these movies, check them out by the next episode. I'm George. I am Chris. And you were listening to 3 Euros Per Movie.